Morning BHA. It is a podcast about barbershop recorded today. Richard Reeve in Queensland and there's Ash down in Perth. Two Australians talking about the greatest hobby on earth. Oh boy, it's swell to say. Good morning BHA. Good morning BHA. This is, welcome to the most recent example episode. I've got David Reed in the background, pointy fingers, of a podcast about all things barbershop in Australia with a dollop of international. And today we have an entire episode, pretty much, of international. Uh, my name is Richard Reeve. Um, going uh, without my attractive, intelligent, tall co-host, Ash Schofield, today. He is back uh, in Poif, Western Australia. But I am joined today by... Uh, BHS uh, singing judge, um, coach, uh, music director of Central Standard and other things, Mr. Rob Mance. Welcome to Good Morning BHA. Good morning, BHA. See, I told you he was here. Can you tell the, uh, can you tell the slight uh, Canadian accent in his voice? We'll get to that in a second. Um, mate, um, exciting to have you on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to chatting through all things barbershop with you. But I, before I ask the question that I ask all of my guests first, I'll, I'll do a bit of a precursor. We've just finished a, uh, you just finished a day's coaching um, uh, with current BHA, gold medalist chorus, uh, Sound Connection. Tell me, generically, if you'd like, typically, how, how do you feel after a coaching session? Is, does it range from, from excited to frustrated to everything in between? Or, yeah, what, you know, you're, you're now sitting with a nice, uh, nice cold beer in your hand. I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, yeah, typically, uh, what's your range of where, where are you at after a coaching session? Uh, completely fired up. Uh, I definitely do this because I love it, and even more so, love celebrating successes that people find, um, you know, with their instrument and with their performance. So, it, it, you know, I try as much as possible to nourish the, the, the singers that I work with, but I feel like I get nourished even more. And, uh, yeah, it, ju it just... It just brings joy to my life. It really does. The reason I'm laughing, you may have heard that in the background, is because just before we started this podcast, I, I did speculate. I was, I was chatting to Rob about a few things, and I did speculate that once the podcast began, he might go into diplomatic mode rather than, you know, really frank, almost blunt mode. And, uh, and he said, no, 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 I'm just honest all the time. Uh, and so his first answer is just beautifully bridge building and just the loveliest thing to hear for everyone um, so it's nice to nice to see his diplomacy come out but then it's, it happens to be correct as well and honest as well um, so to set a bit of context um, we are at uh, the Bolter brewery which is in on the Gold Coast in Australia and um, uh, the reason I sort of mentioned that is partly to, to explain what the, the background noise is but also specifically Rob had a chat with sound connection um, at the end of rehearsal and just had just explained how important the social components for his choruses is uh, and that they, they just they spend a lot of time together out, out, outside of rehearsals and drinking beer so uh, yeah what better place to interview Rob than at a pub drinking beer which is a core part of barbershop so with all that uh, being said um, the question I start off every interview with is tell our listeners please a little bit about your musical background and how you found Barbershop, how you discovered Barbershop. Absolutely, so um, 
I grew up listening to it. Uh, my dad is a 53-year member of the society, and his dad was a, the president of the Northeastern District back in the early 80s. So I'm a third-generation barbershopper. I've done uh, lots of different types of singing, and certainly all my education is in classical music, but uh, barbershop has always remained a, a warm and happy place in my heart. Uh, it, it's just so fun, and the people are so great, and, you know, barbershop music challenges your ear more than almost, I think, anything else I've done in life. You know, and so barbershop music is both accessible to, you know, anybody who can carry a tune, but it's also challenging for those who want to be really challenged in life. And so I grew up listening to it, and at first I thought it was like the nerdiest thing in the entire universe. <laughs> and, you know, I thought it was a bunch of old guys wearing yellow suits, singing bad songs out of tune. Uh, and, you know, then eventually I heard some really incredible examples of what barbershop music can be. Do you remember those, do you remember those examples of some of the best barbershop you heard early on? Absolutely. So, um, I, the, the chorus that my dad was singing in at the time received a scholarship to send me to, to send somebody to a student to a weekend barbershop school. And, and they sent me, and I'm like, okay, this is cool, this is... And, and I remember it was, it was held at a, a, a university in Massachusetts. At the time I was living in Montreal in Canada, and, and I remember it was walking up kind of the, the pathway of the quadrangle of the university, and all of a sudden I hear this like, crazy sound and and I think I just exclaimed out loud like what is that and somebody who was nearby said oh that's keepsake warming up and and keepsake was warming up in the room in the dorm and the window was open you know it was i think one of the loudest sounds i ever heard and it just like blew me away that human voices could sound like that and i think maybe at that moment i'm like okay and you know not not long after that um my my parents gave me my first barbershop tape you know <laughs> before mp3s and cds you know um you know and that was at the gas house gang and so it was really i think i think keepsake and gas house gang were probably my two biggest gateway drugs um to to this you know barbershop world that we live in so um yeah so and and once once that happened, I mean, oh my gosh, I was just absolutely hooked by it, and um, haven't looked back ever since, so, yeah. Excellent, nice. Um, uh, so much for us to talk about, but w while you were just talking then, it occurred to me, um, uh, is there something unique about Barbershop, now that you're, with your training as a vocal pedagogist, um, there's... 
you know, so many forms of music and so many voice, uh, genres of singing and even a cappella singing. Um, it, yeah, do we know what it is that is unique about barbershop that is the that is the drug? Yeah, I think obviously all of us that do barbershop love harmony, and and certainly it's the harmonic variety in barbershop music that I think differentiates it from a lot of the popular music that we hear today and a lot of the um, the other kinds of acapella music and. And for me also, it's just the challenge of it. Barbershop is this bizarre dichotomy of, you know, if you can carry a tune, you can probably join a chorus and, and just have a great hobby for the rest of life. And for those that wish to pursue it to a higher level, it is a never-ending challenge. You know, barbershop music is both easy to join and become a part of and find success, but to truly do it at a high level, is, is, it requires a level of skill that is very, very, very demanding and takes you know, a lot of practice and a lot of time to attain that. And so barbershop music is this great combination of accessible and challenging, and I think that's what helps make it so appealing. And, and certainly, also the social aspect of, of barbershop music and how, for a lot of us as, as quartet and chorus singers, you know, while we love rehearsing, we also love being a community with each other. And I think that's something that makes it really special. And, and, and that level of, of specialness, uh, I haven't experienced that in other kinds of singing that I have done. And, and so, you really, when you join this barbershop community, you're really joining a family, a really big family. And, and I think for, for individuals that can be very empowering. You mentioned that um, you, you're a third generation barbershopper. Um, tell us about your, your, your earlier memories and to the extent to which, so from your previous answer, do I get the impression that you weren't always necessarily going to have barbershop in your life forever or do you think you were? Oh, when I was, when I was growing up, I had absolutely like no concept and not even any desire to sing barbershop. Like that was something that dad did. and. To some level, we appreciated it. Uh, my my dad's quartet would rehearse in in my parents' living room, uh, and my sister and I, my sister's two years younger, like when we were quite young, we would sit on the stairs and just sit there watching quartet rehearsal, and so you know. We appreciated it, and, and you know it was a good memory to, to watch that. But at that moment, you know it was Dad's activity that he did that we appreciated from that, and it wasn't anything that I saw myself doing. As I said, until we saw, uh, you know, until I'm like, wow, you know, and saw what what potential existed out there. 
and you know, and and in that process, like figured out ways. I had okay, dad was on to something here, <laughs> and 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 then being you know immersed in it myself. So awesome. So a couple of quick things. Uh, um, we've got. Uh, a, a bunch of listener questions, which I'm excited about, which you get onto and get onto in a moment. But just as we as we get prepared to do that, um, uh, it occurs to me when you talk about joining a family, uh, you know, many of us have had different musical backgrounds, um, and many of us uh, are, are involved in or have been involved in musical theatre, which is very very project to project. Um, so I wonder if you can sort of you have any comments there. The, the other the other qu question to you is. Um, one of the things, and, and listeners may remember this from my Steve Scott interview, but one of the things that I that Barbershop I, I find most inspiring about Barbershop is those of us who have good-ish, like adequate voices, solid but definitely nothing amazing solo, can come together and create extraordinary music. Uh, I think that's one of the most um, empowering and uh, it blows you away. It, it introduces you to a, to a possibility that you never thought you would be able to do. I wonder if you could just talk through that and your experience of that. Absolutely. I, I, th I think that's um, a, a great introduction to the, the two choruses that I direct. Uh, Central Standard, uh, which I started directing in January of 2011. And then more recently, we formed the sister chorus of that, Vocal Standard, a women's chorus. And one of the things that I love the most about both choruses is that for whatever success that we've, you know, that we've managed to achieve, both choruses are very much a quote-unquote Joe Barbershopper chorus. We, we are not a chorus of rock star singers. We're all very average people and... But we come together and create something greater than the sum of the parts. And that's one of the things that's also so satisfying about what we do is we don't need all need to be rock stars on an individual basis that deciding to come together and be a team, be a family, that we all participate in everything together, that we all have each other's back, that we can do really wonderful things that you know, not only impacts our own lives, but can impact the uh, those that we encounter in in our performances. So, I, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know that that so speaks to who both of my core both of my choruses are. Um, is just again probably working to create something that is more than the, the sum of the parts. As you were talking there, it, it, uh, it occurred to me that not only vocally are we creating something, but you know, I, I, I think we've all experienced a, a solo 
vocal performance that fills a room and, and is extraordinary um, and that's wonderful um, but something about an ensemble performance is you, you're creating something with other people yeah. and there's a social psychology and a sociology to that a real beautiful bonding experience so yeah we love that so uh, over the past uh, few weeks I've thrown out the invitation to listeners to uh, send in their questions so Rob I'd uh, just hand over to you invite you to uh, to go through some of these questions absolutely absolutely so let's see, um, Elizabeth Davies writes, what are the most common limiting beliefs that you encounter among barbershoppers, things they mistakenly believe to be true that are limiting their progress? That is a great question. I think there, there, there is some legacy teaching in barbershop and certainly in the broader choral and vocal world, there are a lot of myths that are going to die a long, hard death and, and still get regurgitated to this day. But I think um, if I had to pick a few, one of the ones, the, the most popular piece of barber coaching advice in the entire history of barberdom is to sing with more air or use more air or move air or use warm air and and certainly that is an appropriate piece of advice just about never and we don't want to use more air the temperature of the air doesn't matter and the human voice works very efficiently on very little air and all that happens by using more air is we get a breathy tone which makes <laughs> which makes a less harmonically rich sound so I, I think that would be number one uh, in in my books we have other legends that are dying hard too you know once upon a time we've taught mouth shapes for certain vowels and so we have all these singers who are making these trumpeted flared lips which just amount to lip tension we've told our singers to stand on the balls of their feet which again just puts us off balance so you know myths like that and then I think for a lot of singers maybe one of the limiting factors is our own belief in ourself and our ability to bring what we're truly made of to the stage and to confront that and to truly be vulnerable and to open ourselves up to an audience because so much of this world is the opposite of that so much of this world is don't stick out and don't you know, to conform. And, you know, you don't want to be that person that sticks out because people are going to talk about you and the pressures of social media and so on. And so, so many of the challenges that we face, I think, are self-imposed. But even though they're self-imposed, they're some of the biggest hurdles that we face. And confronting those can be so liberating and can be so fulfilling at a level when we're able to transcend that and that is 
an error, an ongoing process that so many of us live through. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is why we have smart people like Rob Mance on the podcast for amazing, awesome answers like that. Rob, um, I wonder, if, just building on what you said, a couple of things occur to me. Um, one is that a, a, a limiting factor may be many of us you know, want to do well, and sometimes trying too hard can get in the way. Um, wonder if you'd chat about that, as well as the concept you mentioned this afternoon in coaching, which was um, your voice matters. Sometimes when we're in a chorus, it takes a while to realise. We think, oh, there's a whole lot of other people. They can fill the sound. But it takes a while for us to realise that it's important that we are there as much as we can be. So there's a couple of things for you. Absolutely. It, it's really interesting when I, I coach courses and quartets, I'll do some voice lessons with the members of, of those courses and quartets, or I do some voice lessons back home. Many people will show up with the idea of what are we going to add to their technique to help bring them to the next level? And many people are surprised when we spend 90% of our time taking things out and many of those things that we take out are tensions that people have added because they want to achieve and so they try harder and that try harder manifests itself through muscle tension which ends up robbing the efficiency of the voice and so you know talk about getting in our own way but it's interesting it, it it takes that interest to get that involved to then want to take it to the next level so many of us experience you know wanting to do more and trying harder because of it and then eventually we find our way to a coach or to a voice lessons and find out oh some of the trying we've been doing has been maybe misdirected and there are more efficient ways of achieving that vocal production than others. I, I, I love that. Um, it reminds me uh, that one, one of my favorite sayings is, uh, is try harder to relax. Um, I wonder if you'd also talk about in, in, uh, in this past, uh, I don't know, five years or so, three to five years with the change from the presentation of the performance category and us trying to make things more real and rather than trying harder to be visible to the to the to the audience in the back row just be real I wonder if from a from a singing pedagogy perspective as we get out of our own way and just sing real rather than pushing into it even even that mentality and the physical performance comes through the vocal performance absolutely I I love this change and the evolution of our contest and judging system for a long time I think we were doing some very contrived things and and, and at least at minimum some very unnatural things things that we wouldn't do in daily life and Things that if non-barbershoppers saw that, they would be like, well, why are they doing that? There would be a lack of understanding without explaining why we're doing those things. And I think this move toward real, this move towards authenticity, this 
move away from doing contrived or gimmicky shticks. It's it's going to make our performances more impactful to the audience and more accessible to the public. And we're going to touch more lives because of it. So it's it's a wonderful evolution of our style reflected in our judging system. Great, so we have um, from Cali Caramia. We have a question of how important is the wider spacing in your riser placement process? <laughs> so that's a great question. I limit your answer to less than 45 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, there, there is a video posted by Harmony University out there, which is, um, I haven't watched it yet, but I'm, I'm told it's worth a, uh, worth a watch that Steve Scott and I did at Harmony University a few years ago. But just very briefly, the, the, the spacing that we sing with is vital. If you're standing shoulder to shoulder, as many choruses are tempted to do, you're then disproportionately hearing the people who are right in your ear and hearing less of the ensemble. So by, me, by moving far, farther apart from each other, we can hear more of the ensemble. And by having people not singing directly in our ear, we don't then have to try to sing over their sound to try to hear ourselves. Similar concept that we're doing right now, we're in a noisy space, so we're having to talk louder to hear ourselves, right? And that tends to lead to a less efficient vocal production. So by moving to the point where we don't have to sing over anybody else, we can find more efficiency. Uh, we also, by using more of the risers, by spacing more, we also get to use more of the curve of the risers, so you hear across the ensemble better. You have a larger visual footprint, which can make a bigger visual impact on the audience, and the audience will hear what it sees. If it sees a big group that has come to play, it will believe that. If it sees a tiny little group huddled in the center, they will also see that and a comparatively, you know, reduced impact. And then also, if you're at contest and they're hanging microphones from the ceiling, you get to stand under more of the sound reinforcement. Again, if you're all huddled under one hanging microphone, that doesn't necessarily lead to the best results ever. So, so the spacing that we use is really essential to the product. I know we would not sound anywhere close to where we sound if we did not utilize spacing to our advantage. So just following up on that, so the, the, the flip side to that coin, of course, uh, I think most of us have sung in choruses or situations where we can't hear the guy next to us because the acoustics of the venue and unfortunately often competition venues is so bad. I wonder if you could talk about that as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. We've all been there. It's never fun. It's never comfortable. Sometimes you can feel like you're fully naked singing a solo, right? But baritone solo. Baritone solo, yeah. <laughs> so, but the two pieces of advice here. One is that 
I preach this relentlessly to my choruses and to the groups that I coach, is that no matter what, do the plan. Do the plan, do the plan, do the plan. You have a super live venue and it's like reverberating all over the place, do the plan. You have a normal venue, it feels great, do the plan. You can't hear a thing, you feel completely n naked, everyone's staring at you because your voice is singing out, do the plan. Do not back off and know that everybody else on the risers is feeling the same way too. And so sometimes singers will come up to me and say, well, you know, I couldn't really hear anybody else, so I just backed off a little bit. And it's like, no, do the plan. That is the number one way to overcome any acoustic. The other thing that I would recommend to choruses is before you go on a do a performance or go onto a contest stage, is sing in as many different foreign acoustics as you possibly can. So, for the several weeks before contest, I am changing our rehearsal venue, I'm changing the room that we sing in at the venue, we go and do like the first hour of our rehearsal in the parking lot, literally, so that all the voices just go. There's no, there's no reverb, there's nothing, it's just gone. And so I want my singers to be prepped for any possible acoustic. And so when they walk on stage, it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is, this is just another acoustic. We're used to that. Versus the chorus who rehearses in one rehearsal space over and over and over again, and then the second something has changed, we get spooked by that. So I want to set my singers up for success by mixing up the rehearsal acoustic as much as possible. That will put them in their best place to be on their A-game on contest or performance day. Excellent, wonderful information and answer. Mate, um, just expand a little bit if you'd be so kind. Um, so, given that a foundation of this concept is um, being far enough away so that you don't have to sing louder, so, you, so your ear isn't dominated by the people um, beside you, the flip side of that coin is how is, um, do you, is there merit from a physics of sound and vocal pedagogy perspective in adjusting your riser placement on the basis of the venue like if it's a show and you can practice in there adjust that to optimal um, and it, uh, the, the, the twin question there is keeping member enjoyment involved because we want each member to be just far enough away to hear everyone for their own personal enjoyment absolutely so if it's if it's a very very dead venue then I will tend to bring the singers a little bit closer together. So we're looking to find an ideal self to other ratio. So how much am I hearing of myself? How much am I hearing of the others? And so I will adjust that. So if I'm perceiving that the singers are not hearing enough of themselves, we might stand a little bit sorry, not hearing enough of the other singers, will tend to cheat a little bit more close together. If my singers are getting way too much information, we might spread out a little bit more. So adapting to the venue so our singers are comfortable, again, singer comfort will go a long way toward providing a more successful result. 
and some of our favourite um, YouTube recordings, of course, are where a chorus is just in one big circle, a metre away from everyone, because the acoustic is so spectacular, they can hear everyone anyway, they don't need to be next to anyone else. Um, Alright, so what, what's that? Over to our next question. Um, let's go with... Uh, so we've got Dan Bennett here. Dan is the music director of the Canberra Chordsman in uh, Australia's capital. Um, Rob, if you'd be kind enough to talk us through a central standard rehearsal. Absolutely. So um, every rehearsal starts with a vocal warm-up. And the vocal warm-up, the chorus warm-up, is not to actually warm up the voice. So I insist that all of my singers arrive to rehearsal fully warmed up, 100% vocally ready to go. If we are literally warming up the voice at the beginning of rehearsal, that's rehearsal time we have just flushed that we can't get back. So having said that, do we skip the chorus warm-up? Absolutely not. That is where we work the ensemble skills of the chorus and of each section and of each individual. And so whatever vocal skills I want to be present in the rehearsal must happen in the warm-up or they probably won't happen. And the flip side of that is if it happens in the warm-up, chances are it will happen the whole rest of the night whether you want it or not. So if I want an in-tune rehearsal, my warm-up needs to be in tune. If I warm up flat, how am I going to sing the rest of the night? Probably flat. So the warm-up is where we establish the level of the rehearsal. Any behavior we want repeated the rest of the night must be present in the warm-up. So we take it very seriously. And we tend to address any ensemble issues. So, you know, hypothetically speaking, say my basses aren't great on the fifths of chords and my baritones aren't great on thirds my leads aren't great when they sing below the baritones and my tenors sing seventh sharp hypothetically speaking of course what are we going to do we're going to have a warm-up that puts the basses on the fifth the baritones on the third the leads below the baritones and the tenors on the seventh so that we're addressing in the warm-up the exact issues that we want to be working at a higher level during the rehearsal. So the warm-up sets us up for the greatest amount of success. And so that's an absolutely, you know, I really view the warm-up as the most important part of the rehearsal. The most important part of the rehearsal. Um, we will, we will, at various points of the evening, but at various points of the evening, but certainly after the warm-up, we will sing some repertoire, both because I want the guys, the opportunity to experience what we did in the warm-up is move through the repertoire, is to, is to experience that in the repertoire, but also our chorus members like singing full songs, you know, and so, you know, yes, I love picking things apart. I'm very left brain. I'm very technical. But I know that not all my members, you know, love picking things apart as much as I do. They love singing full songs. And so I will absolutely give them the, that experience. Uh, I will also very frequently teach my chorus a tag. And 
as much as possible, I'll pick a tag that then accesses some of the skills that we worked on in the warm-up. So they have another chance to apply that. We, we tend to focus on, on maybe a couple of songs a night with, with, with greater detail. Uh, and, and I will work those. And oftentimes I'll have one of my performance pe people out front coaching. Very frequently I'll have my assistant, associate director out front directing. And I might be coaching or I might be listening, taking notes. Where I might be standing on the risers singing and listening to what's going on around me is, is a valuable, valuable tool. And as much as possible, most rehearsals, uh, you know, at least for Central Standard, and I think, uh, you know, the, my newer women's chorus, Vocal Standard, we're getting to that point where most rehearsals were either doing a sectional or we're doing a section duet. One is because I want to build the unity within each section. If we're unified within the section, we have a greater chance of being unified as a chorus. But also because I want to give my assistant directors and my section leaders the opportunity to regularly work with the chorus. And so if I very rarely have them in front of the chorus or in front of their section, I'm not giving them the opportunity to be successful. So I want them working on a weekly basis and, uh, you know, helping to develop our product, but also helping to develop their teaching skills, their comfort in front of the chorus and the sections. And, and again, if I do that rarely, I'm not doing them any favor. And, and then certainly, uh, toward the end of the night, definitely do some repertoire again, because again, I know that my singers love singing full songs. And, and so I'm always conscious of the pacing of the rehearsal, where we definitely want a strong beginning, we definitely want a strong ending, because I want my singers walking out being like, yeah, you know, I can't wait till we do this again. And if there's ever anything tough, I'm gonna bury that in the middle, right? And, and so I would, I would never, yeah, I would never start a rehearsal with anything like super tough. I would never end a rehearsal with anything tough. I'm gonna strategically place that so that we start strong and we end strong. And then I'm also in engineering into the rehearsal mental reset moments. And so we warm up in a circle, so a single row circle, and then generally repertoire will sing on the risers in a mixed formation. The circle is almost always in section, dictated by voice placement, so they're standing in a particular order that I've assessed based on voice placement. But I know that moving from the circle to the risers, then risers to sectionals, sectional back to circles, circle back to risers. Those just shifting a position allows a mental reset moment. Whereas, you know, any course, no matter how great they are, if they say, I want to be excellent, three hours standing on the risers in one spot, anybody's brain will start to drift. 
And so just that change of setting, the change of what we're doing is enough to hit the brain reset button so that my singers are more engaged for the next part of rehearsal. So much gold here. Um, mate, just one thing I would follow up with. Can you talk more about the MD? We've, I mean, we could talk for, for all day about this stuff, but could you talk more about the MD relationship, um, both up and down, and how it's a two-way street? So we talked before, I think, the podcast about the, 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 the relationship that the MD needs to have with the board or executive or whatever people call it, how it's two-way, the, 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 the MD officially is accountable to the management committee, but in order to be successful, the management committee needs to provide the MD with certain things. And likewise, as you just touched on there, sometimes, for example, an MD might have um, a, you know, really strong sort of emotional ownership of the chorus and feel like, well, in order for the chorus to be successful, I have to be out the front the whole time. Um, uh, so talk about those two relationships. Absolutely. So... I know that for many of us, and myself included, as musical directors, we got into this because we love music, not because we love organizing stuff. <laughs> and, and so for many of us, and, and again, I will plead guilty to this, you know, our brains are in the music all the time. And sometimes, myself especially, communication is a challenge because, you know, that's not my first calling in life. I just, again, I love digging into the music. So as a musical director, I need to take steps to make sure that the communication is taking place. And, and I, I, I can attest that's an ongoing challenge, but I'd like you know, to develop hopefully strategies so that we're all playing on the same team, so that we are all moving the ship together in the same direction. So about um, with my men's chorus specifically, every two weeks I try to meet with my uh, my president and my music VP and we go out for lunch. It doesn't even matter if we don't have anything on our agenda. We just sit down for lunch and talk about things and it allows us to get everything out in the open to make sure we're all on the same page. Nobody's surprised by anything because we're regularly meeting. So I, I call it lunchtime diplomacy. Uh, but just having those meetings has been really helpful. And we try to stick to that every two weeks or so. Um, and then the other interesting thing is with Central Standard, the way that they had organized their structure was that the director was not a part of the board, nor was the director even on the board email list. And at first, you know, having always been a part of the board of any choral or, or, or barbershop group I'd been a part of before, it was almost panicking to not have that seat at the table of the board. And then after a couple months of realizing, wow, there are so many things I don't have to worry about anymore. Other people are doing it, and not only are they doing it, they're doing a great job of it. So now I can be more focused on the music 
it became a wonderful thing. But it's only a wonderful thing if we're constantly talking with one another. So, so finding occasions to make that happen, uh, you know, means that we're going to move forward in a more successful way on an organizational level, which then makes the music much, you know, flow much easier, if you will. Thank you, mate. Excellent stuff. So on to our next question. Uh, this is from Jim Cat, um, the lead of 2003 BHA Champion Quartet, Free Fall, and uh, the music director of uh, Sydney Harmony previously, and now Sydney Vocal Project, a mixed chorus ensemble. So Jim uh, asks, what are the three most important techniques in freeing up the vocal mechanism, in brackets, asking for a friend? And, <laughs> and again, this is your, your sweet spot, your purple uh, spot. Of, I'll get you to limit your answer to less than an hour and a half. <laughs> well, I don't know if that was part of our deal, but I'll try my best. Um, no, all, all kidding aside, um, so... Uh, alignment is maybe one of the, like the, the biggest keys toward freeing up the voice. Now, when I started singing in choirs and in chorus, alignment was the thing that we did with the newbies on the first night and then never referred back to it again. It was just kind of that basic thing. And, you know, 20 years ago when I knew absolutely everything, if somebody tried to talk to me about my alignment, I probably would have rolled my eyes and been like, you know, dude, I've been doing this a long time. I think I, 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 I think I know how to stand. Can we please get to the real stuff that's going to impact my singing? And it took me way too long to figure out, no, this is the real stuff. That there's that much to it that alignment is going to be a lifelong journey. We're going to be chasing the unicorn at the end of the rainbow for the rest of life. We're never going to find it. And alignment is like tuning. Tuning is a fallacy. We will never, ever be in tune. We spend the rest of our lives trying to get less out of tune. Just like alignment, we will never be aligned. We're always just trying to make finer and finer adjustments for more and more efficient results. So alignment, we're looking to get the the whole body and specifically the voice working at its most efficient but then also we're looking for the muscles to do the least amount of work possible we want the skeleton doing most of the work holding up the body and the muscles doing the least amount of work we follow the rule that tension anywhere in the body means tension in the voice so that would be number one uh, number two, I think, is a lot of our singers for years have been told, add more support, sing with more support, and without any definition beyond that. And so a lot of our singers will tend to engage their abdominal muscles way beyond what is necessary, which puts the air under way too much pressure. And if the air is under way too much pressure, Frequently, then, what happens is that there's an equal response from the vocal folds now having to hold that pressure back. And so, very frequently backing out some of the pulmonary pressure from the abs will be, uh, will help free up some of the grip that we have 
um, you know, at the level of the larynx, uh, at the level of the vocal folds. And then I think one of the things that I preach to my chorus is, it, it, my choruses, is that if you picture every joint in your body, now try when you're singing to keep every joint subtly in motion at all times. So we're not dancing around with ants in our pants, right? Keeping every joint subtly in motion so there's a buoyancy to the body, there's fluidity, and we're not keeping any part of our body rigid as not we're a singing. Statue. Yeah. Exactly. So we're we're looking to limit rigidity and so I like to say good singing is physical singing. Once we find the alignment, again, it's not a statue, it's not a posture, it's an alignment, it's getting points of alignment one over the other, but then we want freedom in the body, and that's gonna come from releasing muscle tension. So again, keeping every joint in the body subtly in motion. Just a quick follow-up to that. Um, gosh, we're actually out of time, but we've got to cover one or two more, more topics. Um, very quickly, just talk to us about choreography, because obviously, by definition, when you're moving, you're not going to be in perfect alignment when you're doing choreography. Absolutely. So, uh, alignment is going to show us home base position, and we can move away from that while doing choreography and again if the body is is freely in motion that's a good thing because if we can freely move a joint then we know there's an absence of tension there so moving with the music is wonderful and so we really encourage our singers to move with the music during our warm-ups again if if you want singers to move with the the music Again, that behavior must be present in the warm-up, so we'll add some movement to our warm-up exercises to help encourage that. Nice. Excellent. Right, thank you. So our last question is from Nick Sherman, who's the music director of the Baden Street Singers, current BHA champion mixed chorus. Um, what are some accessible tools I can use to, uh, to get better at vocal pedagogy? Uh, so, for those of our listeners who may not have um, listened to the Steve Scott interview yet, A, listen to it, but B, uh, Rod, maybe just do, do a very quick definition of what vocal pedagogy is. So, pedagogy is essentially teaching of a subject, so vocal pedagogy is we're teaching voice. And, and here's an important thing for all of you music directors, section leaders, coaches, you know, choreography folks, visual people that stand out in front of the chorus. The second that you utter your first instruction to a singer, to a quartet, to a chorus, by definition, you are a voice teacher. And as a voice teacher, we have the we have the ability to do great harm and we have the ability to do great good. None of us will ever know everything about the voice, but it's incumbent upon all of us to learn as much as we can about the instrument. And I know that myself and a couple others, Steve Scott being one of them, we really try to live by the mantra of do no harm. Because there are a lot of well-meaning folks out there and a lot of urban legends, 
a lot of harm has come from, again, instruction that if we had delved a little deeper into the literature, into the resources that are out there, then, you know, again, a lot of harm could have been prevented for, uh, for, for singers out there. And so, again, the second you give an instruction to a singer, you are by definition a voice teacher. And the only thing that we can ask of everyone is to continually learning and applying new skills to, to the, 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 the coaching and the teaching that we do of others. So, um, and, and by the way, the, the mixed chorus that you just mentioned, I got to hear them for the first time two years ago in Sydney, just an aside. I was beyond impressed with them. They are, they are an incredible chorus. And, and I mean, you want to talk about voice, voice pedagogy and healthy singing. Uh, I, I just remember being so impressed with that chorus. So to, to that chorus, carry on the, the awesome work. But um, uh, two resources that I recommend, uh, because I, I receive this question pretty frequently is, okay, how can I develop uh, my knowledge and my skills in this area? Uh, so there, there are two books that I recommend. One is called Your Voice, an Inside View, and that is by Dr. Scott McCoy. And, and uh, I find that book very useful because a lot of vocal pedagogy books tend to be extremely technical and use a lot of big words that can be, you know, off-putting to a lot of people. And that book is accessible, but really gives you great information, and not only that, then backs it up with multimedia resources to then give examples of what the book is talking about. So, you know, in the vo vocal health section, if they're talking about vocal fold hemorrhages and what's going on there, then there's video of a scope of a vocal fold hemorrhage. And so, you can both gain the knowledge but also experience via multimedia um, what many of these concepts look like in real life and so to, to, to visual learners in particular it's a great resource. The other book that I recommend is called Solutions for Singers by Richard Miller. Richard Miller has written several volumes on voice pedagogy and this one is particularly useful in dispelling a lot of myths about the voice. So we talk about, you know, just myths that keep getting handed down and passed from person to person. Um, the, what happened was he went to a conference with voice teachers and, and these teachers were invited to write questions about like, do I want to drop the jaw? Do I want to raise the soft palate? You know, questions like that. And th these questions were placed in a fishbowl, and one by one he pulled these out and answered these questions, and then his answers were turned into a book. And so it's a wonderful volume in helping to dispel a lot of the popular myths that are out there.
and can really set us on the path of reality of dealing with the voice. So good, Rob Mance. Thank you so much, mate. Um, we're out of time, but uh, uh, anyone who, who uh, wants to keep listening will anyway. So I'll follow up with this question, um, just from what you've been talking about. But th- this information I receive may have been wrong. Uh, on, uh, you've mentioned over the years that various pieces of information are, are wrong. But I-, I was told that the, the key reason that, that we sang or sing mostly gender-based, so mostly ma- male harmony or mostly female harmony, is because there's a, there's a physics of sound of, of the gender. Um, you know, and I think of a, a Westminster and there's just something so beautiful about that sound. Or I think of a GQ, um, a current, I think, third place Sweat Adelines International Quartet, and that I could just listen to their singing all day. Um, but then you talk about, uh, like, the Baden Street Singers, um, and that's just such a glorious sound. So can you talk about gender influence in harmony singing? Absolutely. Um, the, 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 the one thing I'll say is that I think um, women's barbershop is made challenging by the fact that a woman's voice works more efficiently the higher that she sings. And of course, kind of, you know, stereotypically or, or, or as an a average, we talk about the balance that we want to achieve in barbershop as, you know, quote unquote, having kind of a cone shape or at least that we want a big foundation and then we have a harmonizing part above that we don't want to dominate over the melody. And, and so, you know, while a woman's voice gets stronger, the higher that she goes, or more efficient, I should say, that the, the barber, barbershop balance, kind of the, the on-paper ideal, is the exact opposite of that. So that does make women's barbershop challenging. Does it make it impossible? No, we have tons of amazing examples. I am a massive GQ fan as well. They are absolutely amazing, but it does require, uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, working to achieve that balance, which is kind of going against the natural efficiency of the woman's voice. Having said that, I am so excited about all these mixed groups that we have coming out. You mentioned the the the, the Baden's. Baden's. That's amazing too. Like steel or anyway. Heavy metal. Heavy metal chorus. Unbelievable. And um, I just recently judged. I guess when was that? Last month, the Evergreen District contest in the Barbershop Harmony Society. So the the northwest of the United States and the west of Canada and there was a mixed group there 14 singers called PDX Voices from Portland, Oregon and amazing absolutely amazing 14 people and and I think they were at least in singing I think they were averaging somewhere around an 83, 84, somewhere in that neighborhood. And they have only existed for, I think, 10 months or something. They're not even a year old. So, I, I mean, if, if, if there was any doubt whether, you know, mixed barbershop can work, 
we, we have some highly adept groups that are providing all the proof we ever needed and and I just look forward to hearing more of these groups uh, it's it's incredible and 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 it's really fun to do because in a lot of these mixed groups you have you know relatives or partners who are singing together that maybe in the men's chorus or women's chorus they wouldn't have that opportunity and so you know a father and daughter are singing together or you know a husband and wife are singing together and and it just it just adds to the communal nature of barbershop that i i just love so much and and so and and it opens up more and more possibilities i'm excited that there are more competition uh, you know, opportunities for those groups going forward. I know that 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 the BHA has had that opportunity here for a while, and 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 I'm glad to see the BHS is following suit. So, as, as always, uh, BHA uh, setting the agenda and BHS dutifully following. Um, mate, uh, we, we are over time, but thank you so much for your awesome information and and uh, um, my. Before I sign off, I guess I will just ask you my, the, the, my, my favourite question I like to end with, which in your case is sort of a two-pronged. How old were you when you discovered Keepsake and Gas House Gang? I guess I was uh, about 13. 13. So my question to you is, what would 2019 Rob Mance tell 13-year-old Rob Mance about Barbershop and your future in Barbershop? I guess my question is, what, what, what would... Yeah, when you discovered, what would pre-Gas House Gang, uh, what would you now tell pre-Gas pre House Gang, Rob Mance, and um, just after you discovered them, what would your now self tell just after you discovered them? I, I think the, the pre is an easy question, is... Uh, this is so much better than you realise at the moment. Like, barbershop is really awesome, go do that. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I quickly listened to myself in the future after that. Well, that made sense in my head, but anyway. Um, so my question. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think the after Keepsake, Gas House Gang, Rob Mance, you know, in my teens, what would I tell myself back then is go right now and invest in, in, in high-level vocal instruction, not from just anybody who calls themselves a voice teacher, but, but somebody who has the chops and the understanding about how the voice works to get a really solid foundation in vocal technique. Don't wait to develop a bunch of habits and then try to undo them after that. Get in front of that ball now, so we're singing with our healthiest production right from the beginning. So good, so good. mate. Thank you. That that uh, information is just invaluable, and I know that we're going to get a whole lot of uh, comments back from the listeners. Um, well, to sign off, uh, Rob, uh, not only thank you for your time tonight during this interview, but also um, thank you for the, the coaching and the judging you continue to go around and provide, and thank you for the legacy you already have built and and continue to build with Central Standard of Vocal Standard. Um, uh, the go-to for many people whenever we introduce someone to barbershop it's pretty easy to go straight to central
Central Standard and say, this is how good Barbershop can be. So um, thank you for what you have done and th um, uh, thank you in advance for what you will do in the future and, uh, and please enjoy. Awesome, thank you. Thanks, mate.